Good morning, good morning. Go ahead and look to your right, look to your left. Maybe if you're at home on the couch, look to your right. You may have to yell to the next room. Let's go and say it together. Say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Man, I hope that you've had a good season so far as we've been getting closer and closer to uh, Christmas Day. Man, what a busy time. I know you guys are covered up, and uh, I'm grateful for your faithfulness to worship. It's been a great day. Last Sunday, I was at Harrison Bridge, and uh, Brother Brian Owens, our executive pastor of operations, brought the message and opened us up in this new series. Aren't you grateful for Pastor Brian? He's a wonderful, faithful pastor here. Uh, we have, uh, we've started this series called Why Christmas? And it's a really, I, I think it's a, a thought-provoking question. I mean, why is, why is Christmas such a big deal? I mean, even related to, not just related to, um, you know, the, the story, but, but why did God have to send his son? Why is it so important? So that's kind of the whole idea of the four-week series. Last Sunday, we started by asking the question, why now? Because it said, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Galatians chapter 4, so we talked about that, and, and I, I don't know, uh, you know, Brian may have actually dove into this. I did not over at Harrison Bridge, but there's a lot of uh, specifics from the historical significance of the time when Jesus was born that uh, made it strategically a really good time. I mean, from the, the Roman roads, from a hist- if some of y'all are history buffs, you know, all the, the Roman roads were built at the time, and then in, in, uh, the Greek language was uh, the predominant language across the world, the modern world at the time. And so it was a strategic moment in time where when Jesus came, the gospel was able to be proclaimed like everywhere. It was like amazing. The whole world uh, really did get to be exposed to the gospel, at least uh, to some degree there. And, and the apostle Paul, the, the planting of the New Testament church, all of that. It's a very, very instrumental uh, time period related to kind of the strategic now. So we talked about a little bit about why now and the fullness of time, but here's the big picture. At the end of the day, the reason why now every time is because God knows best. And so in, in all of our lives, you may be saying, God, why now? You know, why is this, why is this happening? Why is this bad thing happening? Or why did you choose to do this good thing in this particular way? I mean, I had a plan and I was going this way and you, you changed that. You kind of maybe sometimes we think God messed it up. And, and we may not really understand. Here's what we got to remember. We got to rest in the fact that we serve a God that knows better than us. And so the, the whole idea of the day is going to be centered around surrender. And I think if, if there's one like practical application to the Christmas story, especially through the lens of the second question today, it is this idea of surrender. And so what's the second question? Last Sunday, we talked about why now. Today, we're talking about or asking the question, why Mary? Why Mary? Why did God choose to use Mary? Why did God, out of all the, the women in the world, did God choose to use Mary? Next Sunday, it'll be why Joseph, and then on Christmas Eve. Man, I hope you guys are already geared up, deciding what service you're coming to. Uh, if you're at home, what campus you're coming to, because all 13 services on Christmas Eve or either Christmas Eve Eve. And so make sure you find those times and uh, go and make plans. And also, hey, let me just go and mention this. We handed these out a few weeks ago in our neighboring series. And everybody that's on your neighboring page, these are at the end of the pew, by the way, if you want to take one home with you, just remember to pray for the people on these uh, blanks. 
And, and this is an opportunity for you to be a good neighbor. You can actually take those uh, Christmas Eve invite cards out in the lobby, go and get you a stack of them and take them to your community, man, because people are open to the things of God at Christmas time. It's probably the most strategic time where you can actually productively have a communication with your neighbor about coming to church with you on Christmas Eve. And uh, I'm telling you, God can use that. So man, uh, be a good neighbor, invite them to church. Uh, but why Mary? That's what we're gonna talk about. Go and take your Bibles, turn in, turn on your Bibles to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. Now Luke chapter two generally has uh, the, the, the bulk of the Bethlehem story. Luke chapter one tells us a little bit of uh, the background and uh, builds the case talking about the angel appearing to Mary uh, and a lot of other things like that. So we're gonna talk in particular about Luke chapter one today as we look at verse 26. So read with me beginning Luke chapter one and verse 26. I'd encourage you, if you have your phone even, if you don't have a, a physical Bible, go and pull it up your phone. There are Bibles in the pew. It'd be great for everybody to be. Luke's gospel chapter one. Here's verse 26. It'll be on the screen as well. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, she's going, what in the world's an angel appearing to me for? You know, that's, she's like freaking out a little bit. So she's like, she's like trying to figure it, it out. And, uh, and, and so in the middle of this, it says the angel said to her in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Start with me at the word you and read that with me. You have found favor with God. One more time. You have found favor with God. Now we talk about Mary being the highly favored one. Depending on your denominational background, you may have actually heard that a lot more than even in, in Baptist circles, but that's obviously, there's a reason why people refer to her as the highly favored one. The Bible calls her the highly favored one. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about what that means and what we should believe about Mary related to that in just a minute. There's verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in, in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She's basically, what you're talking about, Willis, right? I mean, she's like, how's that? It's not possible. This no, there's no way that this can happen because I'm a virgin. In verse 35, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. We'll talk about the doctrinal implications with that in just a minute. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Would you say those words with me? Nothing will be impossible with God. And so the, this is so important for us to understand. You may have heard that before, nothing be impossible with God. You may even quote that and you not really remember. This is the Christmas story, that this is a theme and a point that God is trying to make here in verse 37. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
In other words, I am your servant. The answer is yes, no matter what the question is. The angel departed from her. Now, I want to say, first of all, just acknowledge up front, man. Um, you may be here today and you may fit into a category I'm about to say, I'm about to kind of refer to, because there's a lot of people at Christmas time, and I would say even, even in, in general, uh, who are more logically skeptical about things like the Christmas story. You might even say about Christianity in general. There's no doubt in my mind on any given Sunday morning, the number of folks that come to our church and the number of folks that watch uh, on, online, there are definitely people who struggle with faith related to some of the supernatural things of God in the Bible. And here's the thing that I've always struggled with. I struggle with people's struggle because here's the thing. If, you, if you're going to believe in God, then how could you believe in a God that doesn't do God stuff? You know, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about today is really God stuff. Because here's the question at Christmas that a lot of people would struggle with, especially let's say like atheists, people who don't believe in God or people who believe in God, but not sure about Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, the story is talking about the physically impossible taking place. This is something that's physically impossible, yet is only possible if you believe in the supernatural power of a God to do that which is physically impossible. And so here we see a story where a virgin is giving birth. This is, this is a big deal because that's impossible physically. But understanding that this, this brings us to a point to where we, we recognize, and I think this even supports sometimes when we think about Scripture, we, we try, we, it's, it's like we, we forget some of the most practical things about Scripture, like even who wrote the books of the Bible. We're in Luke's gospel. What that means is that a dude named Luke wrote it, all right? So a guy named Luke wrote this gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what's that mean? John wrote John, Matthew wrote Matthew. You know what I'm saying? So Luke wrote Luke. And, um, and so in this chapter one of Luke, the, re the significance of Luke being the author is that Luke is a doctor. Luke's a doctor. And if there's anybody who would doubt the physical impossibility of a virgin birth, you would think it would be a physician. Now in our day, everybody's a physician. Now, the only people who's gonna say amen to that are doctors because I, I, I have, have a couple friends that are doctors. It's funny, they kind of get frustrated with us non-doctors when we come to them and we're like, hey, by the way, I checked this out on WebMD. I know what's wrong with me. You know, did you do this? Like when I, when I have like a pain, uh, let's say I have a, a, a abdominal pain, I'm like, Amy, it's been hurting right here. I mean, like if you Google that thing, you're gonna die in three days. I'm serious. So... <laughs> Watch out, uh, but, but that's how we, we usually go to the doctor nowadays and we've got it all figured out. And, uh, and uh, so doctors are just like, well, I wasted 10 years of my life going to med school, you know I mean, right? No, I mean, obviously, if I'm sick, if I have questions about wellness, this just, listen, I'm going to a doctor. Doesn't mean I necessarily have to agree with every doctor. Doctors even disagree sometimes. But at the, at the end of the day, they know more about your body than you do. They know more about health than you do. They, they actually are an expert in the field. Luke was an expert in the field. This is not a fisherman writing Luke. This is a doctor. And the doctor wrote that Jesus was born of a virgin. I just think that's a big deal. And I don't know that I've ever even really thought about it. And so it's significant that the, the most exhaustive narrative of the birth of Jesus is written by a doctor. 
It's really cool. And so with all that in mind, we understand that that God even helps us in our doubt, in our unbelief with certain little things like that that we may not even see at the first viewing that, that I, I hope comes back around to us. So with this in mind, we understand, yes, faith in the supernatural is imperative for someone to believe this story. If you don't believe that God can do God stuff, you're not gonna believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so here's what I'd say. If you don't believe God can do God stuff, you're not a Christian because the entire gospel is God stuff. It is God doing the irrational. The gospel is God doing the unthinkable. The gospel is God doing what you and I would not have done for people. See, God did God stuff. He showed grace that we couldn't show. He demonstrated love that we would have never demonstrated. He actually left perfection in heaven and came to a sin-sick world to die for people who didn't even believe in him. This is God stuff. And so with that in mind, we understand, look, we've got, sure, we've got to believe in the supernatural in order to to believe the story of the birth of Jesus. In fact, quite frankly, if we doubt if God can send his son to be born of a virgin, then we, we would certainly not have faith enough to believe that the God of the universe came to live a sinless life only to, believe, to be brutally murdered on a cruel cross with the burden of our sins on, on his shoulders. That, 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 that requires much more faith. Than this, So yes, faith in the supernatural, but then even beyond that, I think some evidence and some helpful uh, context is that it's, it's really a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So if you're even trying to kind of be a critic of the Christmas story, we have to look back and see the consistency. Oftentimes, people who are uh, anti-Bible or anti-Christian Man, they'll, they'll take things out of context and they'll run this way and run that way and speak ill of the word of God. The fact of the matter is there's no document on this planet that is near as impressive as the word of God. It is, even as old as it is and as, as many different authors as there are uh, of the various books of the Bible, for it to be consistent and complementary and, and not contradictory is nothing less than a miracle of Almighty God. And in this, we see that the Old Testament prophecy, in particular, I'll give you one example, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, is an example of Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Luke chapter one and two. And so you've heard this, no doubt, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This is, we, we hear that everywhere. We see it on Christmas cards, all that stuff. This is not a New Testament verse. This is an Old Testament prophecy. So this verse was written way before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, and the significance of that, again, is that that Jesus was the fulfillment of this Old Testament stuff. I mean, all the Old Testament prophet named Isaiah actually wrote and foretold under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah was gonna come and he was gonna be born of a virgin. And so a lot of this was actually the fulfillment. It was like a proof. It was like an evidence of, yes, this is him. This is the one you've been waiting for. And so it's so important to understand, but don't forget also in context, recognizing all the importance of the virgin birth, um, Jesus was not an ordinary man. And so since he was no ordinary man, he deserved an extraordinary birth. And you could even say from a doctrinal perspective, 
it was essential he be born the way he was born simply because we understand based on Paul's words to the church at Rome that because of one man, death entered into the world and, and or sin into, entered into the world and death by sin so that basically because of Adam, all have sinned. And so understand that we had to understand Jesus had to be born differently than we were born. There had to be something unique about him that would actually help in the sense of him bypassing, if you will, um, the transmission of the sin nature that would come as it did to all of us and all the rest of mankind. And so this allowed the eternal God of the universe to become a perfect man. He was born, yes, of a woman, but it was by the Holy Spirit of God, not by his earthly father, Joseph. And so there's immeasurable doctrinal significance that we don't have time to really unpack. But here's the thing. This is a big deal. This is a big deal that Jesus legitimately was born of a virgin. So thinking in particular of this young girl named Mary, Luke's story of Bethlehem presents the arrival of the Son of God as a tension between high and low. And we're going to kind of talk for a moment as we even transition into two points. If you have your app on your phone, I know I mentioned that a lot, but if you don't have the app, the app's awesome because it allows you to actually go and you can follow along scriptures on there, but you can take notes. It has fill in the blank on the outline, that kind of stuff. There are two points today that uh, we're gonna talk about in particular. You could even say two characteristics um, in the text that are outstanding related to Mary. Uh, but, but when we're thinking about this, I want us to understand that, that there's this contrast between the high and the low. And so in this, we see the high comes down to meet the low. The high and exalted God of the universe comes down to the earth to meet the low, the lowly. And the low is lifted to meet the high. Now we could say that's true of God and Mary, but even, even more so, it's true of God and us because the high came down to the low and by doing so, the low was exalted and able to be lifted up to the high. So the exalted God of the universe is birthed through the lowly virgin girl named Mary. Now what made Mary so special? I think that's a great question. What made Mary so special? Why was she highly favored? A minute ago I asked you to repeat after me in that one phrase. And the reason why is because I think from, uh, man, we come from a multitude of, of uh, denominational backgrounds. Every time we have a getting to know you, by the way, we had hundreds of folks join in the last couple months. And every time we get to getting to know you, uh, we're kind of reminded again, man, we have a multitude of folks coming from other denominations. Fantastic. Uh, I, met, I met some folks at another campus the other day and they were almost apologetic. They were like, they were like, yeah, we're, we're Presbyterians, but we've been coming here six months. And I told them, I said, man, some of our best members are Presbyterians, amen? That's right. Uh, some of our best members are Methodists. I, so we, it's absolutely, yeah, I know we come from an absolute a myriad of uh, backgrounds and denominational experience. So I mean, no disrespect when I talk about Mary. Mary was, let me just say it like this, an exceptional girl when it came to godly character of a godly young woman, without question. But when we talk about Mary being highly favored, it is not bragging on Mary. I mean, think about it. To be favored is to be shown grace. Are you with me? If you're with me, say, uh-huh. All right, that's about half of you, all right? 
So when we say Mary was highly favored, that's not saying Mary was awesome. Was Mary an exceptionally godly young woman? Yes. But by saying she was highly favored, what the scripture is saying that someone who did not deserve to do what God was calling her to do was given the opportunity to do it. She was highly favored. She was shown grace. What's grace? Unmerited favor. This is what grace is. Guess what? You have been shown grace too. So this is not even questionable, no debate. You have been highly favored. You know, this absolute fact, I am highly favored to be even able to stand and open this revelation of God and speak to you. What's that mean? It means I'm not worthy to do it. I'm not worthy to do it. And if any, if any person ever says that they are worthy to preach the, the, the changeless, perfect word of God, then they are demonstrating why they are unworthy because we are sinners who do not deserve the grace of God. And while Mary was an exceptionally godly young woman, she was a sinner. Mary was a sinner. Mary was not perfect. And we have to be very careful because sometimes in our language and the way we talk about things, we can elevate Mary. And I, I say we, just in general, in American Christianity, there are definitely times where people elevate Mary to a point that's dangerously close to Jesus himself. Let me just be very clear. I don't want to leave any room for doubt. Mary was not God. Mary was not divine. Mary, Mary was not God. Mary was the earthly mother of God in flesh. This does make her exceptional. She's amazing, godly young woman. But we don't pray to Mary. Y'all all right? We don't depend on Mary for salvation. Mary was highly favored. God took the lowly servant, this is the context, and he exalted her to a position of high favor. Such an important distinction at Christmas time in particular because people can get really confused related to Mary. Mary's obviously a key figure, but ironically she is exalted because of her lowliness. Mary's role is passive and obedient, but her greatest characteristic is most likely submission. She submitted to God. He said, do it, and she said, yes, sir. I mean, she was willing to surrender. She was lifted up in spite of her lowliness, not because of her loneliness. She was exalted to a level of exception, not because of her goodness, but because of the goodness of her God and her acknowledgement of his greatness. So Mary provides a clear picture of what God can do through a life completely sold out to him. So here's the thing, for the, the remaining time, here's what I want us to get. We can read Christmas stories and we can, we can you know, get this sentimental feeling and, and get really excited about the lights and the songs. And all, you know, I love Christmas. I mean, Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year, especially when it's like 70 degrees outside. Are you kidding me? Yeah, man, come on. But, but even, even so, we have to understand Christmas is, is, we don't need to get distracted by all of the junk that oftentimes we call Christmas that's become such a materialistic commercial thing. Look, Christmas is the reminder to us that God came to save the world. Jesus showed up. 
And, and in that whole conversation, we can actually gain some personal application from this scripture. Uh, sometimes we may hear a story and we just think, explanation. Well, they teach you in seminary, explanation and application. It's not just enough to explain the scriptures. We need to apply the scriptures to our lives. So in Luke chapter one, if there's an application for us, not if, here it is. It is that Mary demonstrates two massive characteristics that all of us should imitate. Those characteristics are surrender and lowliness. Surrender and lowliness. Now you may say, well, I don't want nobody calling me lowly. I know, that sounds kind of like, almost like an insult. Why are you calling me lowly? But, but Mary actually, as being a lowly servant, it actually positioned her for usefulness by God. And so with that in mind, let's start with the first thing. Surrender is the heart of servanthood. First principle, characteristic of Mary is, is surrender. Surrender is the heart of servanthood. In verse 38, it says, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. See, this ought to be all of our response. When God says, jump, we should say how high. We should just do it. We should just be obedient to God. And there's no doubt in my mind, people watching today, people have been here all day long on other campuses, there's no doubt. There are countless men and women, boys and girls, who God has called to do stuff that they have said no to him. It may be that people in this room, people watching at home, man, God has called you to preach. Maybe God has called you to pastor. Maybe God has called you to lead worship. Maybe God has called you to be a missionary. We bragged on the Barfells two weeks ago who are surrendering their heart. I mean, uh, leaving, uh, uh, talk about medical doctors, literally leaving his practice to go to the mission field, to give his life completely to God. Now, God has not called us all to the foreign mission field, but you know what? God has called us all to no less surrender. God has called you to surrender. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so look, God, God, God has not called some people to a higher level of surrender. When we come to Christ, we lay down our lives. This is what it means to follow Jesus, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And so sometimes in our American uh, ideology and Christianity, we've kind of separated, we've compartmentalized things and we've categorized certain Christians as being more surrendered than others. Now, honestly, Christians are surrendered to God. By following Jesus, we leave the tax table. By following Jesus, we drop the nets. By following Jesus, we surrender everything and we give our lives to him. And so with that in mind, look, we have to, we have to stop separating the expectation of God on our lives and, and, and in the name of bragging on other people who are more committed. God has called you to be committed. God has called you to surrender. Not, not super Christians, not some of us. God has called all of us to surrender. And so when we think of surrender, we, we think of Bible characters like Abraham, Isaiah. Here I am, send me. We think of Peter who dropped his nets. The other disciples, Matthew, Levi dropped. He, he, he left his, his business, his tax table. But here's the thing, surrender rightly reminds us of, of great people. Surrender rightly reminds us of great examples. People who we've seen surrender to God. But in truth, every Christian is called to a life 
that is characterized by surrender. God has called us all to sacrifice. So surrender is not without doubt, fear, and reluctance. And I think that's why a lot of us don't surrender, is we, we doubt or we're, we're afraid. What's it mean if I go to the mission field? <laughs> I mean, I, here's the thing I think you need to remember, that just because you see people saying yes to God doesn't mean they're not doubt. They're not doubting. Just because people surrender and, and you see them obeying God, it's not because, it's not because they don't have fear in their life. But here's what it means. It means that their, their desire to please God, the true surrender, is facing those challenges, counting the cost, and still saying yes. It's facing the physical impossibility of what God is expecting of you and saying, Lord, here, here I am. I'm your servant. You just tell me what to do. My answer is yes. So surrender is the heart of servanthood. Secondly, lowliness shows the need for God's favor. See, again, when we think of lowliness, it definitely brings the idea of humility, brings the idea of submission. But again, we think of lowliness in a sense of maybe this, this is speaking highly of Mary, but here's the thing. Loneliness shows the need for God's favor. See, the low needs the grace from the high. And so here in this scripture, we understand this is a major theme. A person's highest position of honor, man, we need to learn this. A person's highest position of honor is found in his willingness to lower himself to what would appear to others to be the most insignificant and lowly of places. It may be that the very thing God is calling you to looks very insignificant, and you may think, well, God, I, I just don't wanna waste my time on that, that low place or that low position, that insignificant responsibility. But see, if you're not willing to serve God in an insignificant responsibility, he's not gonna give you anything else. He, look, you gotta be faithful with the little before he'll give you the much. And so the, the truth is, we, we've gotta remember, it's not about us, it's not about what we want, it's about what he's called us to. Lowliness assumes no rights. It demands nothing from others. Lowliness claims no ownership of credit. It claims no ownership of fame. It claims no ownership of appreciation. Mary wasn't looking for a pat on the back. Mary was not doing this expecting that her picture would be on every wall and that she would be a statue in every nativity scene, right? I mean, that's not why, that wasn't her motivation. See, lowliness comes with the greatness of God and the glory of God as its highest motivation. A major theme of scripture, and in particular here in Luke chapter one is this, lowliness is the path to exaltation. In another passage, really multiple passages, uh, we find where it says that when we humble ourselves in the sight of God, he will lift us up in due time. See, if, if we spend most of our time the way that our culture has taught us, attempting to, to lift ourselves up, to promote ourselves, then guess what? At the end of the day, we're gonna find ourselves flat on our face and absolutely unfulfilled in this life. But if we humble ourselves before God, if we actually come to him and say, God, it's not, don't, I, I don't even care. You, you have nothing to prove to me. God, wherever it is you say go, whatever it is you say do, I'm doing it. I'm your servant, let it be done to me according to your will. Man, this is a picture of the demonstration 
of surrender and lowliness that God calls us to. I want to fast forward real quickly uh, to, to verse 46. Luke 1, 46, it says, this is when Mary has gone to Elizabeth and she sings a song, basically. Mary's song to Elizabeth. She said in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Even in this passage, she is lifting up God. She's not, even after she knows she's the one that's been chosen, she's not bragging on herself. She is in full acknowledgement that God has shown her grace. The fact is God was about to change the world through two obscure women. These two women, one, uh, Elizabeth, old and barren, Mary, young, poor, and unmarried, yet both obscure women are gonna be exalted and lifted up to a position of great purpose. Why? Not because they were great, but because God was great and he was gonna show himself strong through weakness. But isn't that how God always seems to do it? I always say that's the case with me, least likely to be in front of you today. But Abraham was a nomad, Jacob was a liar, Moses was a slave boy, David was an afterthought. The disciples were fishermen and tax collectors. They weren't kings and governors. No, I mean, they were most unlikely to succeed. Even Paul considered himself the least of the apostles. Maybe it's because he was a Christian killer before Jesus saved him. You see, the fact of the matter is we think God needs us and nothing could be further from the truth. Speaking of Paul, look, the, the Corinthian church uh, received a letter from him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And I'm gonna close with this passage. But I, want you, I want you to listen to this. Paul said to them, reminding them of their need for God, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's basically saying, y'all not the sharpest knives in the drawer, amen? Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God, but God. You see, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being, including Mary, no human being might boast in the presence of God. What's that mean? Mary is an example to all of us that God can use us. If we're willing to surrender to him, if we'll stop trying to make much of us, if we'll stop trying to, to show him our resume and show him how qualified we are to be used by him, why don't we come crawling on our face to a lowly manger? Man, the God of the universe chose to be born in a trough. He did not choose to be born in a palace. Yet we complain when we don't live in one. Man, what is humble about us? What is submissive? What is lowly? What is surrendered about us today? Man, that is the question before us as we say, God, would you use me? God, I'm just your servant. May that be our prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I pray today, God, that you would use it to speak to us. God, our words are insufficient, but we know this through the power of your Holy Spirit. 
We believe that your word changes lives, God. There's power in your word. Today, even in this Christmas season, I pray that you would help us not become distracted by the hustle and the bustle and the the lights and the carols, but God, we would focus on the one who changed everything. God, would you help us do what we're called to do, to humble ourselves before you and to surrender everything, we pray. God, would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand?